The following podcast is brought to you by the Creative Arts Curriculum Team from Secondary Learners, Educational Standards Directorate of the New South Wales Department of Education. As we commence this podcast today, let us acknowledge the traditional custodians of all the lands on which this podcast will be played around New South Wales. Their art, storytelling, music and dance, along with all First Nations people, hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and hopes of Aboriginal Australia. Let us acknowledge with honour and respect our Elders past, present and future, especially those Aboriginal people in our presence today who have and still do guide us with their wisdom. Welcome to the Creative Cast podcast series. My name's Jackie King and I'm a Creative Arts Project Officer with the New South Wales Department of Education. Today, I'm excited to be having an industry chat with one of Australia's most recognised faces, having performed in Star Wars and featuring in iconic Australian shows like Water Rats, Home and Away and Play School. Please welcome Jay Lagaya. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jay. I'm really looking forward to having this chat to discuss your journey in the arts and how your education and schooling has sort of moulded where you are today. I'd like to start right at the beginning, though. I've done a little bit of research and I I see you were born and raised in New Zealand with six brothers and sisters and two half-brothers. And I love watching the Lagaya family each year at the carols do their their thing and so I was wondering did music play a really big part in your upbringing in New Zealand and sort of what was it like growing up as a kid obviously in a big family and in New Zealand? Music is always a a big part in any ethnic family, mainly because it was a first form of communication. I mean, in Polynesia, we didn't have a written language, so our stories are always told in song and in dance uh, and verbally as well. So you'll find that a lot of Polynesian and ethnic performers, we started out performing, we, we got our performing chops from church you know, um, in the choir, uh, doing nativity plays. And then from there, you get the confidence to, you know, once you go to high school, you know, the opportunity of being in the school play or or doing certain things, you know, arises. And that's when you start to latch onto them. So from my point of view, it was very much, music was very much part of, you know, we, we grew up with all of the families. We grew up with the Osmonds and the Bradys and the Jacksons and the partridge family and you know and the carpenters so we grew up with you know all of these whether they be on screen or off screen and you know through through the 60s and 70s you know that's when songs and that had melodies i mean nowadays you know you're beaten to death by musical phrases and beats whereas in those days you were quite happy to you know have an aca ba you know it's just a introduction middle bridge and end some, something really simple and a song about uh, i saw a girl i fell in love we lived happily ever after yeah that sounds so much more simple than some of the pieces that we hear today although some pop pieces can be 
pretty simple in their structure. The well, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think that people have to also acknowledge the fact that what is now has come from beforehand, you know. You, you look at that experience and then they build on. That's not to say that music nowadays isn't great because there are some fantastic composers and, and musical performers as such. But for me, you know, my brand is back there. You know, I quite like what I like and, you know, my kids like what they like. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I think every family is probably the same like that. Do you remember what your first performance ever was? Oh, yeah, look, um, my first performance was actually leading the choir. My brother, who is a year older than me, was always the leader of the choir. He, he would get up there and sing. And so I was always in his shadow. And then I remember, and you know, and we're matriarchal society. So my sisters and that are older. And so, uh, you know, we had to fall in line. If they said, come in here, we'd have to go in there, wash the dishes, do this, we'd have to do that. Um, and we were rehearsing uh, one day for a big, huge uh, festival. And my brother decided he was going to go out and play with his mates. My brother was probably 15 at the time. So, you know, he he thought he was Leif Garrett. He thought he was, you know, uh, Peter Frampton, you know, and he was out there playing. And my sister said, get in here because you've got to learn this stuff. And he wouldn't. And there was like, there were probably 30 people in the choir. You know, these were a youth choir. And we were all learning the song. So my sister said, stuff that. Jay, come and learn the song. And so I learned this Andre Crouch song, To God Be The Glory. And we performed it. And much to his horror, he came in later on in the afternoon. And goes, all right, okay, what have I got to do? She goes, there's your part. And she went, Hold on, this is a harmony part. It's just, yes, <laughs> you stand with the boys over there. <laughs> he was not happy. We went to the competition and uh, and we won. And all of a sudden, we were performing next Sunday. My mother full of pride. And and uh, my brother never let me down. You know, it was that thing of going, my, I, you know, from then on, I realized, you know what? I quite like seeing the world from in front. <laughs> I, I might get used to that. It's a nicer place to be, that's for sure. Well, you know, there's the old phrase that once you go to the top of the mountain, it's very hard to go back to the valley. <laughs> that's true. So did you do a lot of the, the choir performances like that throughout your youth? Yeah, look, choir and cultural performances. So, you know, we would do cultural dances from, you know, the different islands because ours was a multicultural church as such. And that would bleed over to school where they would have culture clubs. So they would have a, a Samoan, a Rarotongan, Tongan and and all the all the Kiwis. And so they'd have a Maori club and, and all the white Kiwis would sit there and go, well, what are we going to do? You know, I said, well, you could pick up rubbish, you know. Um, <laughs> So it was it was always that thing of you've got your your culture, you can you know, you can go and you know, play your music and stuff. But uh I didn't I don't think the teachers really encouraged him to play Thin Lizzy. The boys are back in town, you know, even though it was a great piece in that era. But yeah, and so it gradually came from the church and into school and once it made that transfer Taste changed. All of a sudden, it wasn't acceptable from our point, of, from our parents' point of view, because it became entertaining for God, and then all of a sudden, entertaining for the devil. You know, go out and perform, and so I was a bit of a rebel, and uh, and I decided, no, I, you know, I quite like this. I'm, I might join this band, and we're going to do clubs. And I was seventeen, and you know, we we're already doing the club scene. So uh, yeah, and much to my my parents' horror. Uh, I would sneak out and we would gig and then I'd come back at sort of one o'clock in the morning and then get up for school, which was just a bit crazy, really. Wow. 
That is crazy, but it sounds like a lot of fun. Just to touch on that, your schooling was in New Zealand? Yes, it was, South Auckland. Fantastic. So you really started your career as a musician? Look, I was. I was a clarinet player. I am a clarinet player. Up until when our music director uh, decided that we were going to play Hawaii Five-O, the theme from Hawaii Five-O. As a Polynesian, we go, yeah, I've got to get into this. And right then and there, I made the decision, I'm going to play sax because I want to play that really juicy part and nobody hears the clarinets anyway. And so I said, oh, so I'm going to play saxophone. He said, okay, not a problem. And then they handed out the music and I looked at the music and I went, oh, wait, wait, hold on. Are you sure this is the music? Because this one goes, dum da dum dum da dum dum da dum dum He goes, oh, yeah, no, the other... The trumpets play that part, and my brother laughed because he played trumpet. You know, and I was going, "What?" Because they go da 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 da, and you go dum da dum dum. I went, "This is not going to pull the chicks." What are you crazy? That's how he is. Very disappointed. There's an old saying that if you're a Kiwi, your badge of honor is that you can play three different instruments and harmonize. So if you can't do that, you're Australian. So in my family, we all learn to sing in harmony. We all play you know various instruments depending on who had what at any one time and so we had a very musical household and I have a very musical household as well. That's wonderful. So how did you come to then have your career is so diverse that you've got television roles, movie roles, theatre roles. How did you come to go from being a musician to then moving into, say, television, movies or theatre? Sort of what came first? Uh, My career was backwards. I went to television first. It's about opportunities. You know, for me, I would love to say that People headhunted me. They they could see the you know the the talent that was the raw talent that was in me, and they were going to take me under their wings. But no, it was very much. I was working as a social worker in South Auckland. I had left school. Uh, I was about eighteen then. Our job was basically to to gather some of the young homeless into a uh, a hall that was in Mangra East, and we would you know teach them stuff like guitar or just you know um, talk to them so that we would try and get them to get off the streets in doing so a director from television new zealand came down and they were doing a documentary on the plight of the homeless and this was during the the apartheid you know big protest that they had uh in new zealand and so i became the liaison i mean i was no older than the guys that we were pulling in and so we would teach them guitar and that on the on a the bank of the stream because they didn't like to go into establishments as such and after three months of filming uh these guys the film crew went away, but the director uh, rang me up and said, look, we're auditioning for a new drama about four musicians who form a band in Auckland. Are you interested? And and I said, look, you know, I couldn't act to save myself. But I thought, oh, look, I'll come over. You know, the phrase, I'll do it for a laugh, has got me into more trouble than uh, than I'd like to, you know, um, I'd like to cop to. But I went along, this was 83, uh, I went along and in this room there were about 15 different instruments and I played all of them because I knew that I'll never get to play these some of these things again. And then they gave me a script and asked me to read it and I read the script, you know, literally I read the script like I was a three-year-old. You know, I went, went, I went down, this, this can't... Um, this can't, uh, what's that? What's, what's that appear? This can't appear to, <laughs> I was terrible. I was shocking. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, <laughs> I got to play that stuff. And I went away. And about probably a month later, I got a phone call and 
they said, we'd like you to come in just to have a chat with, you know, you know, and they had the potential cast there and uh, got me up to, you know, say, look, we're just going to get you guys, some were musicians, some were actors, get you guys to, you know, um, learn this song. And it was, you know, James Brown's, you know, I feel good, do, 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 do. I knew that, you know, and they wanted me to play guitar on it, which I was fine. But then we were playing it and the keyboard player was covering, he was genius. He was covering a lot of stuff. And I said, why don't I play the sax bit? I knew that I wouldn't. And I went, and I went, okay. And so I ended up playing the sax on it. And in doing so, they basically said, we've got a, a utility player here. Jay can not only play the sax, but he can also play double on bass for one of our girls who was an actress and she was learning to play bass. So he could play bass while she sang, you know. So we've got this utility player that can play several different instruments here and cover just in case the, you know, the actors aren't up to scratch. And so I got cast and, you know, I got to, to work with some amazing New Zealand actors and that was the first time I realized how bad I was <laughs> and you know when when the television series came out even though I didn't really I didn't consider myself to be an actor but I knew enough to try and talk over my dialogue <laughs> well my mother's going get away from the television get away and I'm going no no we we should oh, I was you know and and to make matters worse I was learning to drive and I was a courier driver <laughs> With a with a with a bedford truck that was a manual, so they, so the amount of times I went and action, doom, all right, okay, let's just try that again. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I would have one of the uh, the car wranglers who just said, "Listen, if you're going to sit on the clutch for that long, you're going to have to buy it, okay?" Because because uh, <laughs> I was just sitting there. So yeah, that was my. My first sort of foray into it, I went backwards and I realized the power of television. But I, you know, it was one of those things, it was a job. And I went, wow, that was a great distraction. You know, that, those are great people. They fed us as well. And I get paid. Oh, my goodness gracious me. And then uh, when I finished, I, I answered an ad in the paper for the Mercury Theatre. Now, at, at that stage, this was... 84, 83, end of 83 going 84. Mercury Theatre was the, is equivalent to the STC here. So it was the top theatre company in, in Auckland at that time. And I answered an ad. They were just looking for bodies, chorus. They were doing sweet charity. And so I went along and sang and I did a bit of dancing, badly. But I got cast. And I remember the first rehearsal day, a great Māori actor named... George Henry, who has come over here and he's he played uh, Dumbledore in the Harry Potter play down in Melbourne. And he was there with another uh, New Zealand icon. Uh, she's passed the late Lee Grant. And they were doing this Fandango ballroom. I, I, you know, I've never even heard of the Fandango, let alone know what it was. But I was watching them. And in the rehearsal room, they were in plain clothes. But he was sitting there going, Oi, Salah, you don't understand what we are doing here, my darling. And she was playing. And for some reason, it was like I just got this tunnel vision and I just went in and I was in the Fandango ballroom and I saw Vittorio Vidal and I saw this and I, and I kept looking at everyone else and they were watching it, but I was discovering it. And, you know, people say you have an epiphany when you find something that you, you think this is it. And that was my epiphany. That was when I went, I don't know what it is, but that's what I want. And 
Then I went about just stealing people's ideas and trying to imitate people purely because I thought that's how you acted. But it was great because I had a, the, the director for that piece, uh, the late Jonathan Hardy, took me aside and he goes, what you have to understand is this. Acting is like standing up naked and turning around slowly. That's what acting is like. It's just, wow, it went, exactly. It's awkward, it's frightening, it's confronting. And what you're doing at the moment is understandable. But what you are physically doing is you're jumping fences and grabbing shirts because you think that looks great. I'm going to put that on. Those shirts will never fit you. What you have to do is you have to take the essence of what you see. And then you have to mold that essence and turn it into what you can use. Because you can't be, you can't be like the wonderful Nat Lees, his voice is too deep. The presence that he has, the stillness that he has, you can take that essence and slow yourself down. Because I was a firecracker. I was just turning 21 at the time. I understood what he, he said. And so slowly I just became... I just became this owl and I was just watching everyone and what they did. And because, you know, obviously I was informally trained. So I was just stealing ideas and going into a corner and go, <laughs> trying to work it out. Where does, where does she say that without, you know, it going into your throat? And then you, you would ask questions from other actors and they would go, oh, no, no, no. You have to do it like this. You have to bring your voice out. You have to use your theater voice. And I go, why do people look up? Because if you look up, just people can see your entire, this is your money. So people can see your face. And in the old days, people used to walk around with their hands like this because that's how big you would be. And from the gods way up the top there, they could still see you because you're that big. But if you had your hands down by your side, you disappeared. And I went, right. And I was just filing this stuff away. And it was, for me, look, I could have gone to drama school. I didn't know that there was such a thing as drama school. But I could have gone to drama school, but it was the best education I had. You know, it was that idea of what it taught me was that you have to fail to succeed. And one of the great actors, I asked, why? I don't want to fail. He goes, well, don't save up your mistakes for the stage. You know, don't not say. Rehearsals is about going, I don't know. Tell me. But we, and especially in modern day, my students and, and, the, and the workshops that I, I take, a lot of them won't tell you that. And I keep saying to them, this is where you make your mistakes. You have to make your mistakes here. And people go, why? Because if you don't make a mistake, you can't replicate. If you don't make a mistake, you can't go back and go, oh, that's because, I, you know, you bake a cake and it, and it rises and go, how did that work? I have no idea. So you bake it again, but it doesn't rise. You can't replicate. So for me, it's, it's always trying to get into people's head that failure is part and parcel of success. It's the hop in hop, step and jump. And if you fear failure, you will be mediocre. You know, if you feel failure, then, you know, when people say, oh, you know, my wife and I, we've never argued in our entire lives. I went, well, then you have never had a marriage, you know, because you have to argue, whether it be loud or soft or big or, you know, physical, you have to have some kind of disagreement. Otherwise, you are not being changed by the situation you're placed in. You're, you are not learning something because you are set in your own ways. And you're, if you're both set in your own ways, then you're two different vessels going in the same direction. That doesn't mean that you have any relation to each other apart from, you know, it's not in love, it's used to. I'm used to you. I'm not in love with you. And so from my point of view, it was always that thing of learning this way was great because it was visceral and it was tactile. And I would ask and the actors around me were so gracious 
that it was something that I took on myself. Making sure that I go ask because you don't know. And don't start with I'm sorry, but because if you don't know the question or if you don't know the answer to your question, then don't apologize for it. So (laughs) I really love that idea that failure is a part of the learning process. It is so important and so many people fear failure. It is important. You grow from failure. You grow from making a mistake because you're not going to make that same mistake again. That, you know, there's that old saying, you know, don't hold on to your mistakes just because you took so long to make them. And with kids, it's also drumming into their heads that if you don't, rehearsals is about making mistakes, all right? Because if you don't make mistakes... Nine times out of ten, your director will recast you because what am I doing here? If you already know what you're meant to be doing, what am I doing here? You need to be my vision. It's not the other way around. And so it's getting them, especially students, to understand it's okay to fail, all right? Because failing means that you're trying, you know? But the thing is, is that if you don't fail, then you're never going to go forwards because you're never going to risk. So you're always going to be meeting three veg, You're always going to be regular. And then at the end of the day, you're going to turn around and go, I didn't have a life at all. I I didn't live a life. I watched a life. Uh, And I think, especially with young people, it's getting into their heads that you have to fail. Because, you know, society has earmarked it as something negative when it isn't. It's part and parcel of success. And they've got to understand that. Because at the end of the day, we don't learn new things unless you crack an egg. You don't learn new things if you, at first you go, well, I thought it was this. Well, actually, no, it isn't. It's this. Oh, all oh, right. Well, now I know. Uh, and and, and it doesn't, that doesn't only apply to acting. It just applies to life in general. It applies, especially applies to relationships. Yeah. And so uh, and people have got to understand that I, I'm not expecting Superman. I'm just expecting you to understand what your job is. And if you don't ask, you know, and, and that's simple, you know, that that's that's not an indictment on your IQ. It's simply that you're asking, what should you do? I'll give you the answer and then we continue on our way. That's fantastic. So uh, touching on successes, you've obviously had quite a lot of success in your career since then, once you've started to to learn the rope. And I just want to touch on some of those successes and, and what it's like in the various industries that you've worked in. Well, not really industries, but genres that you've worked in. So you obviously graced our screens for a long time, a senior constable, Tommy Tavita in Water Rats, and you've been in Home and Away. Can you tell us a little bit about working on television in Australia? Uh, Working on television in Australia is is interesting. In the 90s, when I came over in 95 to work on on Water Rats, I just finished touring Jesus Christ Superstar, the Harry and Miller version. So um, that was a great juxtaposition. I finished just filming in New Zealand, filming the first episode of Xena, the Warrior Princess. And then I flew over. And for me, I thought, you know, I'm going to be here a year, two years. I'd never been to Australia for a long period of time. Two, three years, and then, you know, I would uh, I would go back. But instead, the tra- I'd already been working in New Zealand for nearly 15 years. So the training I had over there put me in good stead and made me understand that when I came here, I made a, a conscious decision not to be the all-smiling, all-playing, brown-skinned guy. I would be that quiet guy who 
people would turn to for information and in doing so turn my character into a dramatic character and not so much a, a, a comic foible. And in doing so, what it did was allow people to see a different side of me. And then I was able to add the musical flavor to interviews and stuff. I remember going, you know, being invited onto Roy and HD for the first time. And I, I was in the green room and I was a, a mess because I kept listening to them and I'm going, I don't understand a word they're saying. You know, oh, you know, that was all it was. And I was going, um, you know, so I, I had to really concentrate when I went on there, but we had such a blast. And it was one of the breakout sort of interviews that I ever had because he was going, right. And so, so Jay, you know, uh, you know, you must be really excited about, you know, uh, water rats because it goes right around the world, including the Pacific. And I went, yes, my ra- you know, relations in Samoa are looking forward to, to seeing water rats. They said, I suppose you're sending them over, uh, you know, televisions. And I said, well, yes, I am. Um, and then next year, I'm going to electricity, television here. But I also realized that I was an exotic because when you, you can always tell the rhythm of a, of a city simply by, by what you see on the television. You can tell what, uh, what kind of country it is when you have a look at their television because their television normally reflects their communities. You go to New Zealand, it's multicultural. You know, there's brown, there's Asians, there's Indians, there's, you know, uh, there's Europeans and they're all either fronting shows or reading the news or doing stuff. But here in Australia, you only see Caucasians, you know, and with the occasional brown skin or token Italian here or there. And so for me, when people say, has it changed since 95? I go, well, no, it hasn't. You know, it's, you know, every, every now and again, and that's the reason why we've, we've had so many uh, issues with, you know, the, the Rob Lowe Endowment Awards that they, you know, mm. caused the big stink when they came out and casting musical theater casting at the moment that uh, theater producers have to adhere more to giving our people here more of a chance to get in the jobs and sending them overseas. So I think, you know, for me, as far as television is concerned, I mean, what I loved about it was the immediacy of it. People would call me by my character name. So I, in, I ended up having to make a deal with my wife to say, they call me Tommy or any other of those names, I'm not going to turn around. <laughs> and, then, and when people call, I go, well, Tommy, I was calling you back. Yes, and, uh, you know, I would, oh, you told me, I'm Jay. Hi. And oh, yes, Jay, um, I love your show. And, you know, and, <laughs> and when I was doing Home and Away, I mean, uh, I was, you know, in a relationship with Ada Nicodemo, and it was the same sort of thing. You know, people are, how's, how's Ada? How, is she good? Is she good? Uh, you know, or Bed of Roses with the ABC, Terry Armstrong. You know, and our character was, you know, an on again, off again relationship. He wanted to marry her, you know, and I had old women come up to me in the aisles and Woolworths and go, you should marry <laughs> Marry who? You should marry her. I think you two would make a great, you know, and my character was a mechanic. So you'd have guys, you know, road crew guys would stop and go, hey, just, um, do you reckon I should change the air pressure on my tires back? You're like, dude, I'm just, I'm a pretend mechanic. <laughs> Clayton's mechanic, one that you get when you don't have a mechanic. <laughs> so, you know, that's the nature of this beast of, of television itself. It, you know, it, it's immediate, it's, it's impactful. But, you know, you have to make sure that whatever you leave you know, on the table, as far as recording is concerned, that you're happy with. Because you know that in the editing suite, they, they will chop around and chop it up. So you have to be really happy that whatever they left, you know, is quality. 
there's no way I can do this podcast actually without talking about Star Wars because I have, I live in a Star Wars fanatic house. My son actually begged if he could stay home today and be involved with me (laughs) (laughs) because you are Queen Armadulla's personal security guard as Captain Typho. Do you get the same kind of recognition from having done a huge film like that? Star Wars is is part of the you know part of the social fabric. I mean, you go anywhere in the world and they know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, you talk about you know R two D two C three PO. You know, all of a sudden, you know, as an actor, I mean, I'm just a normal actor, but you're raised above all of that because you worked on that hallowed turf. You worked on that. You know, even if it was for 15 seconds or you know 15 minutes or 15 hours. For me, I you know. It's a job, but it was one of those things. I've always been a Star Wars fan. You know, I collected refundable bottles of my brother to take them in to get four cents back on the bottle so we could save up enough money to go to town and watch, you know, New Hope for the first time. So, you know, I'm a a huge Star Wars fan. So when I got to be part of it, uh, you know, I was blown away. And then being on set, it was just the coolest thing. People go, you know, what was it like? Was it difficult? No, it was cool. It was so cool. And... George Lucas was great because he wanted to start work at seven and finish at five. Unlike most you know, directors who would want to push past there or no, start at seven, work at five. And because we worked in studios, we could create night for day, you know, wow. or day for day. So, and then one day I got tapped on the shoulder and said, when you finished here, they need you in the studio 48, which is a back studio. There's a photography studio. They want to take your photo. They want to take photos of you for your toy. And I went, sorry. <laughs> and they went, I'm going to take a photograph for you for your toy. And I went, right. And so I walked into this room and there was this big, huge table with post, four posters, uh, posts down the side with lights on them. And, and they went, okay. And I was in costume. I went, all right, uh, you got to stand up on the, that there, Jay. And I want you just to take a pose and hold that pose. And what they did was these laser lights would come down and they would basically take these minute photographs of me. And then I would sit down in this chair and they would take a laser um, print of my face as this thing would just go around my head like this. And, and then in the end, they said, why is that? It says, well, you know, you know, the Hercules and Xena series. And I went, yeah. It says, well, those are Hasbro, but all of the toys look like Hercules. Even Xena looked like Hercules because, <laughs> you know, they just put the same head on with a long, you know, with long hair and call that Xena. So... This time around, that you know, Hasbro developed it, and, and uh, to the point where um, this is my—I'm not sure if you can see this. I'm going to bring this. I can up. see it. Yeah, we're looking at a toy. Yep. That's right. It's a figurine. Thank you very much. It's not a oh, toy. Oh, sorry, <laughs> a figurine. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, and so, yes, it, it's one of those things that it, for a lot of my friends who are actors, it became real for them when I was filming in Auckland and doing this show called uh, Street Legal. I was playing a lawyer and we were doing a scene and we were breaking for lunch and this van turned up and the guy said, oh, and the AD said, those guys are from Hasbro. They just want to have a chat to you. And I went over and they go, "Um, Jay, is that okay? If we give you a box, we've got a box here of of 25 of your toys. Could you sign the other box, please? And so I signed all these toys and I brought this box back down and went, "Um, what was that all about? This was during lunch. And I went, (laughs) ta-da! And they just went, what, what's that? And then slowly came forward and went, oh, you got a toy. All of a sudden, I was a real actor. 
I said, what? what? You're a, you've got a toy. A lot of them were just like, they were gobsmacked. And the, and the camera crew laughed. But, you know, look, for me, it's, it was a great experience. I, uh, I took that experience, and like most things, I ran with it. We better get it on to schools and, and education now. You have touched on already that a lot of your learning has been through doing and through through being in the right place at the right time. And my understanding is a lot of this business is like that. You said you, you did study some art subjects at school? Art in, in my time, 77, art was about drawing. You know, art wasn't about theatre. So did you, know, you do music or, or drama yes, at school? It, I did music. When they were talking about drama, you know, I wasn't a member of the First 15. All, all the girly boys did drama, you know. The drama I did was when the coach needed a faster player on the field and I pretend to have a sore leg, you know. Oh, oh. That's, you know, that's when I was outstanding in my own field, you know. But, you know, I never realised it. And I think for me, the, the, the turning point was when a teacher's training college troupe came to do a play at our school. I was watching them and there was a Polynesian guy in this teacher's training group doing these plays. And I was going, wait, hold on. You can do this for a living. And something tweaked in me and I went, wait, hold on. And that sort of, that sort of reaction has stayed with me for a long time because what it did was it reminded me that why do I keep fighting for, you know, for ethnics on screen is because kids don't learn, they imitate. You know, they see themselves and they go, I can go there because they are there. I can do that because I can see that person doing that. And he looks like me or she looks like me. And, uh, and so for me, it was like, why, how, do I, how do I do that? Because they call that acting. What I do, they call showing off. So uh, there's a transition somewhere. Fine um, line. Yes, and it was just funny because um, years later, Nathaniel Lee, who also he's done a whole heap of of television shows, in, including The Matrix, and people go, "What do he was he played a character, Captain Mafuso. He was the one with the big, huge walker, and, and as they came down, he went, "Okay, kid, load me up." And, and we became really good friends. And, and he was the one that took me under his wing when I went to theatre. And he looked after me. They call us the bookends because whatever side of the, th- <laughs> the stage he was on, I had to mirror him on the other side. And so uh, and we have remained great friends ever since. And so for me, it was just one of those, those great things that, uh, that came out of, you know, chasing this dream. Yeah, fantastic. So did your school have any sort of creative arts programs but you weren't involved in them? No, no, they they did have creative, they were culturally creative arts. We would uh, translate myths and legends into song and dance. And for me, it was like, well, I get that at home. What do I, I want to be European. I want to do that stuff over there. But, but after a while, I realized that in telling stories with your hands, you know, it's almost like Auslan, bird, tree, you know, the wind and how soft their hands were. And what I learned as I continued on, you know, through my uh, music teacher also said, anyone can sing. Not everyone can perform. And he goes, everyone can act, but not everyone can perform. And I go, and I couldn't figure that out. And then he was just like going, it's the difference between doing one song and doing 15. I went, oh, right, okay. Because you have to have continuity in there. You've got to be able to sustain and you've got to find your highs and lows. You've got to be able to find the narrative in that, you know, and... 
And what it did was it, it allowed me as a performer, especially either in the band or as a dancer in our cultural group, to be able to tell the audience where I was going. And it was like ballet with narration because, you know, the narrator will go, and so the canoe set off in the sunset, fighting the waves and looking for a new home. And, and that's all they needed. And then we would enact all of this stuff, you know, going through the waves and the hot sun and, you know, and I, you know, and I, that's when I sort of went, I'm really telling these stories. I, I can see all this stuff, you know, and I can, and for me, it wasn't so much about acting because I didn't know what that was. So, you know, it was, it was, it was more about survival than anything else. But once you, once you stayed in the moment, what I realized was, was that if I stayed in the moment, the moment moved. I didn't have to. I didn't have to worry about where do I go to? What do I have to say after this? I just had to finish this sentence or finish this voyage and it will appear. And, and that's where I learned to trust the process. And in doing so, understand that people will go with you. If you, if you see it, they will see it. That's a really interesting perspective. So what would be your thoughts in this day and age preparing students in the classroom who are sort of gifted in acting or music, what would be your advice to teachers for trying to help students prepare for a career in the entertainment industry today? Is it about getting them to build stamina to be able to sustain a, a longer period of time acting or, or be able to play 15 songs, not just one? What? What would be your advice? Oh, look, first, I would say to them, why do they want to do it? Because, you know, if you want to be famous, rob a bank, you know, because <laughs> acting is a job. And, and I'd also explain to them that what you have chosen, everyone can sing a little, everyone can dance a little, everyone can act a little, but not everyone can lawyer a little or mechanic a little or plumber a little. So everyone thinks that they can... Quite, you know, quantify your worth because, oh, you know, my cousin, he sings. So what's the big deal? You know, ours is the only job that we have to renegotiate every single time or justify. If I was a doctor with 30 years experience, you would take my bill and you would pay it. But as an actor, I've got to constantly dance for you. I've got to constantly, well, I haven't seen your work. So, uh, you know, everyone wants a discount. And I would say it is one of those things that it has to be within your soul. And someone's always asked me, what makes a good actor? Which is, you have to be a good human being to start off with. You have to, if you're a good human being, then you can be a good plumber, a good actor, a good lawyer, a good father, a good mother, good brother, sister. But you have to be a good human being, first and foremost. The next thing is get a job. It, not in the acting industry, just get a job. Because you'll be amazed at how much having coin in your pocket will give you confidence. Because then you can stop and look around. And the other thing is, is own your actions. If you own your actions, you will save a lot of heartache. Did you learn your lines last night? Well, you know, um, the problem is my mother, she had a, you know, she had an episode and she had to go to the hospital. We're actors. We use the ethos a lot. The last thing you want to do is muddy the waters up there by, you know, making up stories about dead relatives or, you know, because cause up there... <laughs> You know, for me, up there, you we always, because it, it's one of those things, humans in general, when you're in trouble, the first thing you do is go, please God, you know, even if you're not religious, please God. And so, you know, I believe it's always 
performance is very much about not for your audience as such. Because if you translate applause for the quality of your work, you will always be disappointed. So for me, a performance is very much about performing for a greater being. When I did Lion King, Julie Tamor, who created The Lion King, told us a story about in the 70s, she had an argument with, she was in Bali, she had an argument with her boyfriend and she was sitting in the courtyard of a temple and it must have been midnight, she heard a bell ring, door opened and about 30 priests, fully dressed, came out and she looked around, there's nobody there and they came out into this courtyard and then for another hour or so, they sang and they performed and she kept looking around going, there's no one here. And then after that, another bell rang and they all went back in. They were fully dressed and they performed and they sang and everything, you know, resonated around her. And she sat there in the silence once they left and back into the darkness. And she sat and she's going, but there was nobody there. But there was nobody there. And then she realized that's what performance is about. Performance is about performing for something greater than yourself. Performing for something that is for the ethos itself. Because you know honestly, that if somebody came to you and said that was a great performance, but you phoned it in, you would take it on board, but you would feel a little ashamed, right? Whereas if you perform for this ethos out there, that's as good as it's going to get right now. And as Julie said, you will win the war, but you may lose the battle. But the great thing about it is you open yourself up to coming back next week or coming back tomorrow and doing the same. And she goes, and when you lose yourself in the bright lights, uh, in the applause and in the loving arms of your audience, go upstairs and perform once again, you know, for the, the ethos, for the greater being out there. And you will realize that it not only cleanses the soul, but you can't lie to yourself. If you phone it in, you will know automatically. So you have to put it out there. If I've got a sore throat, this is all I can give you. This is all I want. That's not a problem. This, you know, It has to come from a place of truth. And doing that every now and again allows performers to not get too big to them, for themselves. And it doesn't matter if you're an amateur. It doesn't matter if you're a professional. It doesn't matter if you've been doing this for years. If you stop every now and again and just perform, you realize the extras that you've put on, the twinkle in your eye or that little turn of the head and you realize, I don't need that stuff. Who's that for? And you realize, I'm just creating shapes because I thought, this. I saw somebody do this and I thought I'd just be really sophisticated and throw my hair back like that. But at the end of the day, you're not telling the story and you're not being truthful. It doesn't come from a place of truth. And so when you break it down to brass tacks like that, uh, for me, and I do it constant. I do it, you know, two o'clock in the morning. My wife is going, "Hey, we're trying to sleep," you know, you know, <laughs> you know. For me, it's 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 fulfilling and it's cleansing the soul, and also makes me accountable for not only for myself but for that brown skinned kid who's sitting in the audience. Goes, that's what I want. And when they see you, they see the real you. They don't, you know, they'll see a character performing and they'll go, "That was amazing." But I say, you know, the person you see on stage shouldn't be any different from the person you see off stage. Even though you may be playing a character, the essence of your character, when you come off stage, should be just the same. And that way, you know, people don't run away from you, they run to you. I love that. Obviously, you run workshops and, and you teach as well at the university. The With the occasional workshops, obviously, the students out at Mudgee High School are really lucky next week they're going to be experiencing one of your workshops. 
do you have the time to do lots of workshops like that in high schools? Is that something that you do? I'm really lucky in that doing 16 years of play school allows you to bring up high schools and bring up you know places of education and go, hey, I'm coming down. I'd love to come and do, you know, and people scramble, you know, which is great. Uh, I worked from 2011 through to 2017 as the ambassador for Queensland Kindergartens. And so travel the state up there. I have a simple philosophy that wherever I tour, if I'm on tour or wherever I go, I'll ring up the the teaching establishment there and volunteer my services. To a, it not only keeps me grounded, but it also allows kids to see what they can do. Also allows brown-faced kids to go, I can do that too. The classes that I'm doing down in Mudgee is because I'm working on Dr. Doctor at the moment. So we are filming down in Mudgee on the Wednesday. So I said, look, don't drive me down. I'm go- I'll drive down early and I'm going to do a masterclass for the school. So we've got three schools coming in uh, at, at Mudgee High School. And we're gonna, I'm going to do a masterclass from 11 through to 3.30. And then uh, we've been able to get a bunch of the community together and we're going to do a senior masterclass for adults from uh, 5.30 to 9.30. And those are, and they're free. You know, it's and, a huge day and so generous. Yeah, look, I think for me it's that thing of just going $10 in Mudgee is the same as $10 in Sydney. When people, when city folk look at Mudgee, they go, oh, lovely rural people. No, they want just as much as anybody else here. People in Mudgee also have aspirations and dreams. My master classes, I teach life skills. I don't teach acting skills because then you can apply to anything. You know, it becomes this universal pocket knife where, you know, it's that thing of, of, you know, I always tell them stuff like a good scene partner always knows what your eye color is. The, The best time to grow a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is now. And when you're encouraging Being a good human. Yeah, look, I think the thing is is that it, it's always this thing of going, you can make excuses or you can just get on with it. And the evening classes, I say, are always for the coulda, woulda, shouldas. I could have done this. I would have done this. I should have done this. And so for me, it's about reintroducing them to, you know, some people just want to hear their voices. Some people want to be just confident enough to stand up and know the process of how to go about doing that. Some people want to face their demons. Some people want to be performers. Some people also... You know, want to be able to uh, overcome certain fears or overcome, you know, or to be able to, for me to go, no, that was terrible, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but to also give them that philosophy that as a group, we need to shine on all of us. If we shine on everyone, then we all grow. But if you throw shade over this way, then some of you will grow and some of you won't grow. Some of you will will fail and some of you will succeed and understand that we all grow at different rates. So not all of us want to be stars. That's fine. There are mums there that just wanted to come out and to do something different. Let's sing a song. So I cover, you know, how to do auditions, how to, how to you know, to conduct yourself in an audition situation. Um, do I need an agent? If I do, what, what am I looking at? Why should I need an agent? Why do I need to be part of the union? Finding jobs, getting jobs, who owns what? Down to song selections. You know, I will say to them, why is it that people choose songs that are out of their key? It's like, for goodness sake, you know, find out what your key is. And also with people who are going for musical theatre, you know, auditions. I mean, I'm lucky. We're just celebrating the success. My son is a cast member of Hamilton. Oh, Wow. 
Yeah. So, you know, it's that thing of just going, I'm always gobsmacked when people go to auditions, but have never had a real piano player play their music. You know, I've been in an audition where a beautiful young girl stood there for a known musical. The pianist, the accompanist started playing her song. The intro came and the intro went. And she went, he went, oh, sorry, that, that was me. I'll just go back again. Intro came, intro went. And he went, okay, so this is your intro right here. And she turned to him and I swear, this, she turned to him and she said, oh, I know, I come in after the drums. <laughs> to which the director went, so you've only rehearsed this with a backing track? Oh yeah, so you haven't actually rehearsed this with the music? No, okay, um, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm going to, we've got another rehearsal uh, pianist out there. Could you go out and ask Douglas to take you into rehearsal room three? And we're going to see you in half an hour, okay? All right? Which is great. I mean, they gave them the, but I was just sat there and just went, what? <laughs> you, we gave you, they gave the music, but you don't look at the music? And it's like, no, no, I. Because uh, they don't so, read it. Yeah, and you know, and so it's lessons like that. It's real life lessons. It's making them understand that the, you know the idea of claiming the stage, the, the the meaning of the word claiming the stage is basically you walk onto the stage and you walk right to the edges and you walk right around. And it's not because you're nosy; it's because you're telling yourself, "See, nothing to scare me here, nothing to scare me here, and I can go all the way back here, nothing to scare me there." You've claimed the stage now, and just like claiming the room where you walk in for an audition. You go up to people, you look them in the eye, you shake their hand and introduce yourself. And you introduce yourself as you go along. Even if they're talking, you stop and introduce yourself. Why? Because that's the first impression that they'll have. How to dress for auditions, what to do. So it's those little nuances that they'll sit there and go, oh, do I really? Just listen, before they hear you, they will see you. You know, word to the wise, wear interesting shoes. Interesting that's shoes. That's I haven't except. heard that before. Shoes, yeah. Because that's what they'll do. They'll look at you, but then I'll look at your shoes. Whereas if you've made an effort, and once again, if you wore, if you worn wear high heel shoes to an audition, they'll go, "You have no idea why you're here. <laughs> this is not a modeling call, you know." But if you have sensible shoes that that have good art support, but also uh, will allow you to move, if you if we say, "Can you dance and do this?" Then they'll go, "You thought about this." The guys are the same. I always wear um, these uh, these imitation crocodile. Um, skin shoes are to, always a talking point and they'll go all right hey jay how are you great shoes and i'm like yeah these are my <laughs> my my good luck so, you know you make an effort and you've now got a conversation because you just go so, well, what are you wearing i'm just wearing these old you know i don't know what you do that is so interesting i would never have thought of that in a million years <laughs> yeah well see the thing is that as you walk across into an audition you've got all that space so they'll see your face, they'll see your outfit, and they'll look at your shoes. One to remember. <laughs> Obviously, with your workshops, you contact the schools when you're, you're free. How might schools tap into expertise of an artist like yourself to enhance their programs? Obviously, listening to something like this today is a good, <laughs> look, <laughs> is a good help. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think the thing is, is that I'm really easy to find, you know, and, and because I've done so much work across the board, people tend to go, do you know? No. Oh, but I do know. Teachers will always get it. They'll, they'll Google my name. They'll see my Instagram account or something. And a lot of the times they'll contact me through there and go, we just wanted, could you send a shout out? You know, our girls here at Riverside are about to go into the year 12. Could you send a shout out to? So, you know, I send shout outs to the girls. Girls, 
You know, you're almost wow. gone. Have you got the T-shirt on? You know, which is which is great. You know, it, you know, it's you know, if they ask politely and 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 it's done in the right way, you know, you know, uh, they're not abusing the you know the, the right to do it. You know, I I don't have an issue. But as far as these are concerned, I, I sort of sit there. I'm my own worst enemy. You know, it's that thing going. If I'm going to go down there, if we're going to be down there, let's just do something constructive. And, and I was fine. This is a great way to 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 get a a, a good you know, uh, idea of this of the town itself, you know, of its people. Of course. Uh, and then the, the good thing is, is that I you make friends automatically because the next day we're filming, I may see some of these kids on the street or some of the, the grown-ups on the street. So, you know, it's uh, um, for me, it's a win-win situation. You are so generous. Thank you for your time. I want to finish with my final Fast Five. Here we go. What high school did you go to? I went to Mangani College, which is in South Auckland, uh, between the years of uh, 77 and 81. Your favourite subject at school and why? Lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> I only went to school to eat other people's lunches. So, yeah, lunchtime was fantastic. I used to hang out with my European friends because they had real bread. <laughs> oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. Your favourite teacher and why? My favourite teacher was a teacher by the name of Trevor Thwaites. He was our music teacher. Uh, he was a jazz drummer. He would always speak in scat. You know, I need you to drum. I go, bah, bah, da, da, bah, 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 bah. And I go, okay, all right, not a problem. Not only that, he encouraged so many of my fellow Polynesian brothers and sisters who had really had no money to become musicians because he would allow us to hire instruments. And he was so bad at paperwork that he would never chase us up for the hirings. So <laughs> this saxophone became this church's saxophone, became the band saxophone, you know. And, you know, to this day, I, I you know, I thank him from the bottom of my heart because, I, you know, I could never learn these instruments. A lot of us could never learn these instruments without having somebody like that who, you know, Let absentmindedly allowed us not to pay for these things, you know, over a five-year period. That is actually beautiful, though. Your best school memory? My best school memory was as an athlete. Uh, I was in senior high jump. I won the senior high jump, but it went uh, over. It went to uh, jump offs, basically. Uh, and I finally won. And as I landed, I rolled off. And our senior coach would hurry up. They're waiting for you at the 100 meters. I looked up, and the entire school was in the middle of the field waiting for them to run the finals of the 100 meters so you know all you hear is all right uh so uh Jayla guy has just finished with a high jump congratulations senior boys record uh now he's just making his way down to the 100 meter final <gasps> so i had to run down to the 100 meter final and luckily the the uh, head pe teacher said just take a deep breath have some water and then i got into my starting block and then on your mark take go i ran and i ran a personal best of of 10 8 and so um so, yeah, so that was my, my best memory. Um, two Sporting days. achievement. That's right. There you go. <laughs> and what is one takeaway or advice that you want to leave teachers, creative arts teachers, music, dance, drama, art teachers with today? I live by two mottos. Choose a job you truly enjoy and you'll never work a day in your life. And nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. To our arts teachers out there your job is not to finish the sentence your job is to help them pronounce it your job is to help them recognize what their strengths are and carry them over to the next part of their journey you can't take on the responsibility especially with young uh, children uh, and young students 
of of where they want to go. I think for you, it's simply about sowing simple seeds for them. You know, please and thank you. Basically, the standards that you're willing to walk past and the standards that you're willing to put up with. Oh. You know, you know. And the other thing is, uh, a clown will always be a clown. You have to ask yourself why do you keep going to the circus. So for me, it's always asking, especially performing arts teachers and that, with their students, just going, what do you want? And especially trying to get them to understand you have to dream big and you have to follow your crazy ideas because crazy ideas will put you in a place where a lot of people don't want to go, but a lot of people will want to talk about. Crazy ideas will allow you to create characters that end up taking over the world. A talking mouse is now the head of the world. They call him Mickey, even though Walt Disney's editor said he couldn't draw. You look at people like um, Branson and Bill Gates who left school early. It's to each their own. So I suppose in a long-winded way to the performing arts teacher, um, your job is to, is to sow the seeds and, and then allow them to find their way. I love that. That's a beautiful piece of advice. Thank you so much for your time today. I think we've talked way longer than I said we were going to talk. <laughs> but you know what, you, your stories have been fantastic. There's so much I think that teachers can take away from what you've said today and put bits and pieces of that into their classrooms to support our students to, to dream big and to follow their dreams because I think that's really important. Yeah, look, ultimately, I would love to be able to, to do a, a masterclass or a forum for performing arts teachers, to be able to just to strip back their idea of what performing is so that they allow kids to, to be, I suppose. You know, it's difficult when you're trying to control them, <laughs> and let them go at the same time. So it's, it's finding the balance between the two. So I think one of my ultimate goals is to try and run a performing arts workshop for teachers and getting them to learn to fail. I think that's something that we need to talk about in the future because I think that is a fantastic idea. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much and may the force be with you. <laughs> Over the coming weeks, we'll be speaking with industry professionals, including cast members from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Hamilton and other Australian theatre royalty. Next week, We'll be speaking with Australian theatre licensing agent David Spicer with fantastic ideas about staging musicals in secondary schools. This podcast was brought to you by the Creative Arts Curriculum Team of Secondary Learners Educational Standards Directorate of the New South Wales Department of Education. Join us on the Creative Arts Statewide Staff Room as a source of all truths regarding New South Wales curriculum. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Creative Arts 7 to 12 or email us at creativearts7-12 at det.nsw.edu.au. The music for this podcast was composed by Alex Manton and audio production by Jason King. <laughs>